Again, I want to greet each one of you in Jesus' name this morning. I failed to mention uh, Galen and Colleen are uh, with their family, with her family, this weekend. So that leaves me here solo. But again, I want to uh, welcome each one of you here. This morning, the message is entitled, Spiritual Entitlement Denied. Um, I'd like to, in thinking about this message, I'd like to preface it with a few thoughts about um, kingdom rights or um, uh, kingdom um, citizenship. And um, just like to ask the question, how many of you uh, are first generation immigrants into the United States? We have one. So you needed to go in and there was, you needed to, to uh, share the Constitution or there was, there was a procedure, right? Yes, okay. How many of the rest of us needed to do that to gain our immigration, uh, or gain a, a, a citizenship status here in the United States? I don't see any hands raised. So in a way, we're kind of an entitled people, right? We believe, we feel, we expect that because we were born here, that uh, we have a right to be here. Uh, and we automatically become American citizens. If you were born here, even if, you're Amer if your parents weren't Americans, as I understand it, you have the right to citizenship. Uh, when we were in Romania, uh, one of our boys was born over there, and we would have liked for him to be a dual citizen, a citizen of Romania and a citizen of the U.S., but that wasn't possible. We had to choose at the time of his birth which citizenship we were going to grant him or delegate to him, and uh, we naturally chose U.S. citizenship. But uh, as I understand in Germany, if you can prove that you're ethnic German, uh, even if you're a citizen of another country, you can gain dual uh, a citizenship in Germany. Um, now I'd like to look at, think of spiritual citizenship. So having those in your mind. I'd like to look at Romans 9 this morning. Romans 9. And the last verse in Romans 9 reads like this. Almost like a riddle. But it's a, it's a statement that Isaiah made. It says, as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. And whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. So this was a quote that Paul made out of Isaiah. From Isaiah, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense. And whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. I was really, as I go into this study in Romans 9, I, I want to say that I was really blessed to have the scripture from Matthew 18. I felt like that was a very good companion scripture because it shows the heart of Christ and what his will is for us. Okay, the basic premise of this letter, of this portion of Paul's letter, was to address the, the standing of the Jews in the sight of God. Um, you see, when we let someone 
or when we believe something that isn't true, we're actually hurting ourselves. And Paul knew that they were hurting themselves by believing, holding to something that wasn't really true. The, the Jews felt they're entitled or predestined to be God's chosen people. And you can kind of understand that. This morning, you didn't come to church thinking twice that, you know, I'm going to need to go in and, and uh, go through that process of becoming a U.S. citizen today. You were born that way. You never had to face that. You want to maybe, maybe, maybe you have a passport this morning that gives you access to all different parts of the world simply because you're a U.S. citizen. If you are the citizen of another country, let's say a third world country, your passport may not or may would not uh, give you access to many places in the world. <clears throat> but we feel somewhat entitled uh, because we have this, and it's been a blessing to us, <clears throat> this U.S. citizenship. Well, the Jews felt entitled and even predestined to be God's chosen people. <clears throat> and I want to look at it to see what Paul has to say to them about this. <clears throat> and I also want to add, this is not just a break into Romans 9. I've been moving through the books of the, of the book of Romans and uh, ended out some time ago in Romans 8. And uh, so I felt led to break back in again here after maybe several years. So uh, bear with me. Romans 9, verse 1. I say the truth in Christ. I lie not. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost. I'm going to move over into the New King James Version. Um, that I have a great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren my countrymen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, the eternally blessed God. Amen. But it is not the word of God, it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of the promise, of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to the election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. What then shall we, <clears throat> what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. 
Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. You will say then to me, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay? From the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, whom he hath prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he also called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles? As he also says in Hosea, I will call them my people who were not my people, and her beloved who was not beloved, and it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there, shall, there they shall be called the sons of the living God. Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because the Lord will make short work upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of Sabbath had left a seed, a seed, we would have become like Sodom and would have been made like Gomorrah. What shall we say then, that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained righteousness, even the righteousness of faith? But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. For they stumbled, as it, as, for they stumbled at the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling, stumbling stone and rock of offense. And whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Now, looking at this scripture, it is uh, important to understand this scripture really ties in with chapters uh, 10 and 11 as well. But I want to move through this because I really didn't know of another good way to do it. I want to move through this and... and um, Explain it as I understand the scripture to be um, to be explained or to mean, and uh, draw from it what we can for our own lives. So Paul addressing the the Jews here, he says, "I say the truth in Christ; I lie not." And he says, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost. Now understand that Paul was, was under a lot of pressure from his former colleagues and his friends. He was a serial traitor to them. Uh, his fellow Jews hated him, bitterly hated him. Uh, this, this was a Pharisee to them that had turned from Judaism to Christ, that person that they didn't see as the Messiah. They didn't see worthy to worship. They didn't see as God. And if there were ever a sad story of friends who shared the same deep values, the same loyalties, and the same hope for their nation, and the same, that same patriotic spirit, it would have been Saul and his friends. Saul thinking before his conversion. Um, now this converted Paul, he has the gall 
<clears throat> to tell them certain things that they believed about themselves and their relationship with God, things they held dear, things that they would bet their lives on. He had the gall to tell them that these things were untrue. They were not that way. And he made, Paul makes it clear that it's not through, he makes it clear to his fellow Jews that it's not through arrogance or pride or hatred that he's addressing them. Rather, that it's through a longing for their repentance and, a, and for their salvation. A, in verse 2 it says, I have this great heaviness and this continual sorrow. You know, how could Paul's feeling for his people have been better expressed? A, a great heaviness and continual sorrow, a great weight an unceasing sorrow. goes on to say in verse 3, I could wish myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. And we have a similar testimony of Moses in uh, Genesis 33 or 32. Remember he was coming down from the mountain. He was up there to receive the Ten Commandments from God and was bringing them down from the mountain and realized that the people were down there worshiping a golden calf, had turned away from worship of God, and he was so upset. And God says, look, just let me destroy this people, and I'll make a people out of you. And Moses moves back to God, and he says to the Lord in verse 31 of chapter 32 of Exodus, Oh, this people have sinned a great sin and have made them gods of gold. Yet now, if thou wilt, forgive their sin, and if not, blot me, I pray thee, out of thy book, which thou hast written. An amazing testimony. And Paul had that same feeling for his fellow men. I could wish myself a curse from Christ for my brethren. Then chapter, in verse, in, I'm sorry, verse 4. He says, who are the Israelites to whom pertaineth the adoption, the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the service of God, and the promises? A number of things here. The adoption, glory, covenants, giving of the law, service of God, and the promises. Six items here he mentions. And i just like to look at the adoption. Think of Abraham being called out of his homeland. The Lord says to Abraham, Get thee out of thy country, from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless thee, them that bless thee, and curse them that curseth thee. And in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. So Abraham departed, and as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him, and Abraham was 75, 75 years old when he departed out of Haran. And also the glory. In a large chapter of history, Israel was in the spotlight. She was the apple of God, God's eye, as uh, is said in Zechariah. She was, miraculous, she was miraculously delivered out of Egypt. She was led by a cloud of fire. The nations around her knew her God to be strong, to be powerful. And then verse 5, Whose are the fathers of whom concerning the flesh Christ came, who is over all, God blessed 
forever. Amen. The patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the greatest privilege, she, as a nation of Israel, had given birth to the Christ, who is over all. And I'd like for us to note something here. Paul was unapologetic about pronouncing to his fellow men, his fellow Jews, his fellow family, that Christ was over all. He didn't draw back from that. He pronounced him as supreme, even to his fellow unbelieving brethren. And I believe that should be the same for us. We can't apologize for Christ. He is over all. We have to unapologetically, as his children, let that be known. He is over all. Christ is over all. The promise is to the spiritual Israel. Verse 6, and, verse six 7, and 8. Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect, for they are not all Israel which are Israel, are of Israel. Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. So we could say that is these which are the children of Israel, of the fleshly Israel. These are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for seed. I once sat down with a brother who was somewhat troubled. He was troubled because he didn't feel like he was really having a victorious Christian life. And he said, Gerald, he said, I just wish that I were a Jew. And that took me back a bit. And I was like, what do you mean? He said, I just wish I were a child of Abraham. Well, I can associate with that. But he said again, I wish I were a Jew. And I, and I said, well, tell me why you say that. He said, if I were a Jew, he said, I wouldn't have to worry about not being saved. He said, I would just be automatically saved. And I asked him, well, why is that? And he brought up this verse from Romans eleven twenty six, which says, And so all Israel shall be saved. And as, as it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer and shall turn away from ungodliness from Jacob. He had been, someone had taught him that this verse means that all Israel, anyone that was an Israelite born as an ethnic Israel, Israeli, would be saved. And that person needn't worry about his salvation. Well, after some conversation, we move back into this passage of Scripture here and to these verses 6, 7, and 8, where it talks about Israel. And it talks about Israel being the seed of Abraham. They which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for seed, for the seed. You know, it's very possible that many of the Jews that Paul spoke to had the same thought. To them were given the promises. You know, they were born into the Israelite community. And, and uh, they were all about holding God responsible to perform on those promises. 
And Paul begins shaking up their way of thinking, their cemented beliefs, by using their own history to give them a lesson. Let's read in verse 9. For this is the word of promise, at this time I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by her father Isaac, for the children not being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to the election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. It was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. Now remember, Esau is also a child of Abraham, as was Ishmael. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on, on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. I think that we do well to keep in mind that Paul's audience, again, being Jews, they were well aware that Paul was referring in verse 9 to, to Ishmael. Remember, Abraham had implored God when him and Sarah weren't having a child to accept Ishmael as a son of promise or as a seed of promise. God refused. He didn't go along with that. And then he blessed Abraham and Sarah in their very old age with a son, Isaac. God chose Jacob, the second born. And also, we might keep in mind that God chose Christ, the second Adam. But anyways, God chose Jacob, the second born, contrary to Jewish custom, while Jacob was still in the womb. You know, God's decision, decision here, counter to what Isaac would have chosen, um, you know, according to Jewish custom, uh, Esau would have gotten the firstborn, the blessing of the firstborn. And Isaac was willing yet to pronounce that on Esau, but then was deceived by Rebekah and Jacob. And I don't think this was God's will. I think there would have been a better way of this taking place. And even if, um, Esau, if Isaac would have went ahead with that blessing, God still would have blessed uh, Jacob like his intent was but you know going back here again contrary to Jewish custom uh, God said that the firstborn should be blessed or the secondborn should be blessed even before Jacob was born and I think there's a clue to the choice of Jacob that we find in verse 13 and I believe this has to do with the omniscience of God. God knew Esau's heart. He knew his choices even before he was born. They were all an open book to him, and, all, and Jacob's as well. In, in Isaiah 46, 9, it says there, Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning. From the ancient times, what is still to come? I say, my purpose will stand, and I will do all that I please. That's God speaking. 
He is Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. And why wouldn't he know the choices that Esau was going to make, the heart of Esau, and the choices Jacob would make, the heart of Jacob? I won't pretend to understand the omniscience of God and exactly how that relates with man's free will. Uh, I can only speak to what I know. I do know that God so loved the world, like it says in John 3.16, that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's his will. Also in Hebrews 7.25, it says, Therefore he is able to save Christ completely, those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. That's the heart of Christ. He always lives to intercede for his people, for the person who would come to him. That is his will. So then it goes on to say, so then is God, or looking back in verse 14, so then is God unjust? Based on these verses, God so loved the world and Christ wanting to save all that come to him, is God unjust? No. And we'll look at that some more based in the, on the context of this letter to the Romans. I don't believe, though, and I want to make this clear right now, I don't believe we should entertain, ever entertain the notion that possibly we're not, I'm not, or our fellow man is not, one of the elect or one of the predestined or that our neighbor isn't maybe or that someone in another country isn't. We should never entertain that thought based on John 3.16 and based on Hebrews 7.25 and many, many more scriptures that show the heart of Christ for, for mankind. <clears throat> Verse 15 again, I'd like to look at that. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Again, that's referring back to that account of the golden calf, um, where the people were worshiping it, worshiping it, and then Moses says, um, you know, count me out if you're not going to save this people. And, and God comes back to me, says, let's Moses know in no uncertain terms in, in chapter, um, in, in verse 33 there. He says, actually it's chapter 33. Um, he says, I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion and mercy on whom I will have mercy. And he lets Moses know that it's not up to him to count himself out of God's people. Verse 16 says, not him that willeth, nor him that runneth. Moses couldn't will himself out of the fold of God. Of course, he could have sinned. He could have turned away from God. But that was not Moses' heart. That was not the way Moses believed. It's not him that willeth, nor him that runneth, but God that showeth mercy. And remember again, Paul is speaking to a people that believe that theirs were the promises and the exclusive relationship with God. And he's showing them something very clear here. He's showing, that, showing them here that they can't um, 
force God into um, or obligate him to, to fulfill on promises that, that where they've broken a covenant. If that makes it clear enough. They broke the covenant with God there at Mount Sinai and not worshiping idols. And by doing so, they no longer had a, um, the possibility of, of holding God accountable to, to that exclusive relationship. Not only that, though, God had made it known to them early on even that his people were beyond, beyond their group. In verse 17, it says, For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. And we could add to Pharaoh, Judas, and Pilate. You know, in Pharaoh's hardness and in his rebellion, the glory of God was magnified. Um, that crossing of the Red Sea, that annihilation of Pharaoh's army and the, you know, the judgment of, of the killing of the firstborn there. Those all were a result of Pharaoh's hard heart. And God had decided to work judgment on Pharaoh. May I add, the work of Christ was accomplished through the choices of, of men whose hearts had become hardened. I think of Judas and I think of Pilate and I think of those many other people there, Jewish people, but also you're in my rebellion. Um, God's, God's name was glorified through that. Again, let's hold on the thought that Paul's addressing these people who felt they had special favor because of their ancestry, because of their adherence to the law, because they'd been circumcised. In verse, in Romans verse 18, it says, Therefore he hath mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will be, and whom he will he hardeneth. And I believe this again relates to God's omniscience. You know, think of Peter here. He denied Christ in the worst of ways. Yet God knew Peter's heart. And he granted him forgiveness. The forgiveness of Christ extended to him in the most gracious way. But I would like to remember, you know, Peter, for us to remember, Peter wept bitter tears of repentance. Bitter tears of regret. And he so wanted back that relationship with Christ again. And Christ granted him that. And Paul himself was a recipient of forgiveness and of grace, of much forgiveness and grace. And so am I, and so are you this morning. Judas repented of himself, but notice the difference. And I thought of this in relation to our Sunday school lesson this morning. He took things into his own hands. Instead of becoming like a little child, he instead took that guilt on himself. He took that punishment on himself and he ended his life. But I believe Judas could have turned around. I believe he could have went back to the foot of the cross. He could have asked forgiveness. He could have become as a little child. 
And there's so many people today. And we, I find this in myself, and I believe we find it in ourselves as humankind. We set our own standards, and then we're ashamed of our, our inability to live to those standards. And we, you know, become a little like Judas, a little more and more like Judas, and, and punish ourselves. And it doesn't work. Our, our own works don't get us anywhere. And until we learn to come to that place of rest at the foot of the cross, to become like little children, and we need to learn and relearn that, we don't have peace. Pharaoh was the epitome of evil. He was the highest point of evil probably to the, to the, to the Jew, uh, at least of ancient, um, looking at ancient or further back history for them. You know, he was the one that betrayed the seed of Jacob in Egypt and brought his people into humiliating servitude and slavery and misery. And when Paul refers to Pharaoh's heart being hardened, the patriotic Jew would have no doubt uh, rejoiced. You know, God raises still the basis of men to fulfill his divine will. He hardens unrepentant and sinful hearts until they believe a lie. And that's a possibility. Paul's saying God can do that. He can take a vessel and he can make it into something even harder and more undesirable for and bring glory through that. Verse 19, Thou wilt say it then, Unto me, why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? And it goes, this argument seems to go along the lines with, of if Pharaoh brought glory to God through his rebellion and his obstinacy, then why should he still be judged and punished? And Paul says, Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the powder power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? What if God, willing to show his wrath and make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? I believe he's still addressing this Jewish argument that they deserved the blessing of God even in their disobedience. They're like, Israel, these people are like saying, you know, we're here. God has let us be here, brought us here, and, and it's not our fault. And Paul's coming back and saying, no, it is your fault. It is your fault. And God is, is uh, bringing you to a place that um, will bring you to wrath. They'll bring you to judgment because of, of your sin and your rebellion. Here again, Israel was in decline and God was making her into a vessel fit for destruction. Even in her rebellious state, he was using her to glorify his name. Again, thinking of the crucifixion of Jesus, 
Then look at the rejection of the temple worship system, that great veil being torn asunder at the death of Christ. Or, and then the final destruction of the temple and the scattering of the Jews, not so many years after Christ's resurrection. And also I have to think of the authentication, authentication of, of Christ through the Jews' rejection of him both in prophecy and in the resulting authoritative arguments and works of Christ uh, despite their opposition. So they came in opposition to Christ. They egged him on. They tried to uh, bring him into tr their theological traps and so forth. In all of these, Christ excelled. In all of these, Christ showed his divinity and he showed them for who they were and it only made them more and more aggravated hate him more and more instead of bringing them to him and to repentance. And it was because their hearts were hard. Had their hearts been soft, had their hearts been open to, the, to uh, Christ and to the kingdom of God, they would have understood. So 23 says that he might, might, that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he hath afore prepared unto his glory. Even us, whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. It's interesting. Paul says us as though he were part of the Gentile people. And I believe he identified that way. He was one of the kingdom of God from every nation. I will call them my people which were not my people, and her beloved which was not beloved. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, Ye are not my people, there they shall be called the children of the living God. Paul here making the case from the words of the Jewish prophet Hosea that there would be a much larger ingathering of people into the fold of God. Revelation 7, 9 backs us up. After this I beheld and lo a great multitude, and I look forward to this time, which no man can number of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, and be stood before the throne and before the Lamb. And this will be many, many Israelis, like the, like the sand of the sea, I believe, will be here a remnant that will be very large, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. Twenty-seven, Isaiah also saying, concerning Israel, though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, a remnant shall be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it off, cut it short in righteousness. In verse 29, and Isaiah said before, except the Lord of Sabbath had left us a seed, we had been like as Sodom and been made like Gomorrah. The remnant are those of the covenant, those following in the faith of Abraham, those children of faith. Isaiah is deploring the sinful state of Israel. Except the Lord had left, or may I add, sustained us in a, with a godly seed, we would have become like the disgusting cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And this short work seems to be speaking of a short work of judgment, perhaps in the final days of the nation Israel, or maybe it also is talking about final judgment. Who shall we say then 
that the Gen what shall we say then that the Gentiles which follow not after righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith, faith in Christ, a willingness in a heart to leave self, their own devicements, and lay their lot at the foot of the cross, faith to believe as a little child in the Redeemer, Savior, Messiah. But Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, hath not attained to the law of righteousness. Wherefore, because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone. And I'd like to look at that stumbling stone more in another message. Israel relied on the covenant of circumcision that was established with Abraham. Israel was faithful in the outward, but as Christ said, she was full of dead man's bones. And she failed to realize how much more God expected of her than that. The circumcision was only to be a sign of her commitment to God, a sign between her and God. But the circumcision and the other ceremonial laws ended up being a sort of leverage that the children of Israel attempted to use to make God perform according to their desires, to her desires, even when she was in blatant disobedience and rebellion. And I, my mind goes back to the ark there, not Noah's ark, but the ark of the covenant. Back there in the story where, uh, if you remember, Eli was getting older. His sons were disobedient. And Israel was straying. Samuel was growing up in the temple worship. And um, at some point in there, Israel was attacked by the Philistines. And what happened? She was defeated in the first battle. And so they came back and they said, we have to do something, something to bring God into this, it seemed like was the argument. So Eli's wicked sons took that ark out into battle. And when the Philistines saw it, they were, at first were terribly frightened, were ready to run. But some of their people said, no, 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 fight like you've never fought before, because if the Israelites win this battle, you'll be their servants forever. And so the Philistines fought, and they won. They prevailed, even with the ark of God there in their midst of, of the Israelites. We know what happened. Eli's sons were killed. The ark was carried off, and um, Eli died. He had a stroke or a heart attack from the news of his sons being killed. They had tried to force God into honoring them by taking that ark out. And here, I think, is a very similar story. The Israelites were trying to force God into blessing them even uh, by, by going back on the promises. And it didn't work. Of course, the beautiful part of the story is how the ark came back. There's also a very painful part of the story of what all happened to the Philistine when the ark was with them and what forced them to send it back. But anyways, I'd like to see, look at a few things we can possibly learn from this passage this morning for ourselves. You know, God's plan and timing are perfect. 
God fulfilled his promise to Isaac, uh, to Abraham. And Isaac came in his own time, in God's time. Even though Ishmael was a firstborn, God still blessed Isaac. And this speaks to me that, you know, our attempts to force God by our own intervention really don't make sense. They're a bad idea. Also, one thing I'd like to note there in that, in that uh, account there, God blessing Isaac, is that God honors marriage and he honors women. You know, had God honored Abraham's will to have Ishmael uh, made the promise or the seed of promise, uh, it would have been a dishonor to Abraham and Sarah's marriage and also a dishonor to, to Sarah there. But God honors, God honors marriage, he honors women as well. Sarah was Abraham's rightful wife. God's promises are conditional. He wants the outside clean, but he wants a whole lot more than that. He wants a heart of flesh on the inside and not a vessel full of dead man's bones. I like that song that says, and it really speaks to me, um, I find it a real challenge. It says, to obey is better than sacrifice. I don't need your money. I want your life. And then the second verse says, to obey is better than sacrifice. I want hearts of fire, not your prayers of ice. God's will will not be forced by own works. He will have mercy on whom he will have mercy and bring judgment on whom he wills. But the beautiful thing is, is that God's will is in his word. And so when we look at his word, we can know God's will. And when we do that, we can trust his promises and he will perform. <clears throat> God is long-suffering. He was abundantly merciful to Israel, and yet they sinned, and they kept on sinning. God intervened on Israel's behalf by giving them godly seed. The prophets, the 7,000 that didn't kneel to Baal, the Ruths, the Samuels, the Boazes, simple people, important people, um, the Simeons at the temple, the Josephs and the Marys. He gave them godly seed. He gave them the prophets. Yet Israel declined into a state of darkness and obstinacy. In spite of this, God honored his covenant. And he sent them a great light in the advent of Jesus Christ. Today, God is still raising up godly seed to proclaim his goodness and his will. You know, either we're one of those godly seed or we aren't. We're either living in faithful obedience to Christ and his church or we're living in unbelief and in disobedience to Christ and his church and I will say this that the steps I, I think I noticed this more I don't feel old but as I move you know along I notice this more than ever that the steps from obedience to disobedience and the steps from godliness to ungodliness um, don't seem to take that long to travel You know, especially when a person rejects the authority of Christ and his word and the authoritative fellowship of the bride of Christ on his or her life. <clears throat> God has the prerogative. He has the right to harden sinful hearts to use for his glory. But the most beautiful thing is God's will is that none should perish but that all should have eternal life. He willeth to save 
to the uttermost all who call on him. And I praise God for that. God bless you.